Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, June 15th, 2015. Coming up, we talk with How on Earth's own Joel Parker about the historic flyby of Pluto by the NASA spacecraft, the New Horizons. And we'll speak to Joel right now. Hi, Joel. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule today to give us an update on the flyby. <laughs> Thanks, Beth. It's uh, great to be here. It's interesting to be on this side of the interview of uh, on Hell on Earth. Well, you are right up where the action is. Maybe you can start by giving us a little bit of the history, because I understand that the New Horizons launched over nine years ago. That's right. Uh, this is a mission of delayed gratification. So, uh, New Horizons launched over nine years ago, and uh, you can imagine uh, long before that, uh, the idea was put forward, proposals were written, and uh, had to be rewritten. It's been a long road to Pluto, but uh, the spacecraft did launch uh, back in 2006, and uh, after over nine years in flight, because Pluto is far away. We finally made it and just had the flyby of Pluto just today. Oh, that's so exciting. And are you able to tell us what you saw, or is that going to wait further analysis? Well, right now, uh, the spacecraft literally had its closest approach of Pluto on the order of about uh, uh, three hours ago. So the spacecraft has been busy during this time uh, doing all the observations that we've wanted it to do. In fact, there's about a 22-hour period of the most intensive observations. During that time, the spacecraft isn't talking to the Earth. It's doing all the work we told it to do uh, because the high-gain antenna, the main antenna it uses to contact the Earth, can't steer independently. That means when we turn the spacecraft to look at Pluto, it loses contact with the Earth. So we actually do not have data from that closest flyby until the spacecraft contacts us again. Uh, this evening, we will get what we call the phone home <laughs> message. That's just the spacecraft telling us, I made it. I'm here. You know, I'm past. And then we will start getting some of the data. Uh, but we have been getting data during the approach. So we've been getting images, getting better and better. And just this morning, uh, we released uh, what we call the full-frame, Lori full-frame image of Pluto. That is the last single image that shows the whole disk of Pluto, and it is beautiful. Okay. And are there any surprises on that full-frame image? Oh, there there are lots of surprises on that image and on the other data from the other instruments that we've received already. But uh, on this uh, on this image, uh, we already see you know details of regions that have ice on it. We knew the 
surface of Pluto had certain ices like nitrogen with a little bit of methane and carbon monoxide, just like it has in the atmosphere. But we didn't know the structure, and we see some incredibly bright patches that look like nitrogen ice right next to really dark patches. And so it's going to take us a long time to tease out how that works and what those details are. We, we've seen craters on the surface of Pluto, and based on those craters and how they look, we can tell things about the history of Pluto and how old uh, some of the uh, crater activity is and things like that. So um, there's so many surprises. We're all just kind of agog trying to figure out what to do next. That sounds like it'll be keeping you busy for a long time to come. So can you tell us, is there um, any information you're getting from this new flyby that um, either puts paid to or supports this notion, you know, that astronomers have been batting back and forth for a while now that Pluto really doesn't deserve planet status? You know, I, I always consider Pluto to have dual citizenship. <laughs> it is the last planet to be discovered, and it's the first hyperbelt object to be discovered, the Kuiper Belt being this third zone beyond Neptune that was only just recently discovered uh, in the 1990s. We actually discovered it when we discovered Pluto back in 1930s, but, you know, we didn't know it at the time. So um, whatever you call Pluto, it is what it is. And all the science is still the same science we would do, whether you called it, you know, a planet or a car or what have you. So uh, it doesn't really change anything, um, although uh, it really is a world. Of course, yeah. I I grew up learning Pluto is a planet, so I will always (laughs) think of Pluto as the furthest out there planet. Absolutely. And and then for, you know, there's all these naysayers out there that don't want NASA to be funded. And, you know, despite all the really cool data that we get, um, they kind of wonder about why are we spending so much money on this? So maybe you could give us a little uh, support for that expenditure. Well, there's a number of ways you can look at it. Uh, You know, there are always decisions you have to make about how to spend money where. And you could always argue there's a, you know, it's better to spend it here or to improve things there. But it really does do a lot for um, helping to help us understand our place in the universe and what's going on. And that in itself is an important question. Um, you know, very much like art, you know, we, we decide that art is of value to spend money on because it tells us something about ourselves and how we see things. And in some respect, you could say the same thing about Pluto. But more than that, studying Pluto can tell us a lot about where we came from, about the origin of the solar system, and how it formed four and a half billion years ago. And that, I think, is an important question to answer as well. And I think another really important aspect of this work is that we learn so much simply by doing it. The technology advances. And just the fact that we have gotten this spacecraft out to Pluto and can direct it remotely from Earth is amazing technology to me. Maybe you can tell us briefly about how that all works. So, yes, uh, the spinoff on technology in any development you do can have many uh, profound and 
very often unseen advantages that have applications to things more Earth-based. We've had to basically drive a spacecraft with a four and a half hour delay because that's how long it takes for a radio signal to go from Earth to the spacecraft and then another four and a half hours for it to come back to Earth. So it makes for a very slow conversation. Yeah, yeah. And all the instruments on New Horizons had to be very low power, very small, very efficient. So the ALICE ultraviolet spectrograph that I work on is about the size of a shoebox, an incredibly powerful instrument to study the atmosphere of Pluto, uses four watts of power. That's less power than to run your nightlight. So this type of technology that is advanced definitely has the ability to be applied to all sorts of other areas throughout the world. Yeah, I can imagine that that would have all kinds of useful applications. Well, in before we close, is there one, one particular question, burning question that you have that you would like to get answered from the data that's going to be coming in from Pluto? One thing that I'm very interested in, and it's part of the ALICE instrument uh, observation, is what is the atmosphere really like? So we're making a special observation actually just moments ago, watching the sun set behind Pluto and then rise again on the other side. We're using the sun as a beacon that is going through the atmosphere of Pluto, and we're going to learn very, very detailed information about what the structure of the atmosphere is like, what it's made of, and how it formed and how it's still there, because this atmosphere from Pluto escapes. And so we're going to understand a lot about what the source is and what it's like. So that's one question I'm really looking forward to. Well, that's remarkable that at that distance you can get that kind of information. Thanks so much, Joel. I appreciate your taking time out of your schedule to talk to us. And I know you wear a lot of hats over at that Southwest (laughs) Research Institute. Can you tell us what your official title on the Pluto Project is? Sure. So I am a co-investigator on the New Horizons uh, mission. So I'm a a co-investigator on the science team, and I'm also the project manager for the ALICE ultraviolet spectrometer. Okay. Well, good luck with analyzing that data. I'm sure that'll keep you busy for months to come. And we look forward to hearing more about that project. You will indeed. Thank you very much, Beth. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And speaking of origins, later we'll hear from Ian Tattersall, Curator of Human Origins at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, about his recent book, The Case of the Rickety Cossack, a history and analysis of the evolution of our species. But first, we begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. During big storms, we go inside and wait them out. Looks like animals may do the same thing. Observers have often noted that animals mysteriously disappear before and during storms and, if they survive, reappear when the danger has passed. Although storms provide an extreme environmental challenge to organisms and are predicted to increase in frequency and intensity due to climate change, no one has studied the behavior and physiology of animals during natural disasters. Typically, animals that cannot avoid a storm hunker down until it passes. The success of this strategy depends on whether the storm lasts longer than the animal's energy supplies. Species that can enter a torpid state are able to tip the scales, which suggests that such an ability is adaptive. Julia Nowak and her colleagues at the University of New England in Australia found that a population of sugar gliders, a small Australian marsupial, 
entered deep torpor during a severe cyclone event. The animals didn't just remain inactive, they actively decreased their metabolic rates, as is typical for true torpor, but rare in this subtropical species. I think it's much easier to hunker down inside to wait out the storm. This work was published recently in the journal Nature. And animal lovers, here's a treat for you. Tonight, Café Scientifique Boulder will host a talk about the human-animal connection. Dr. Philip Tedeschi, a clinical professor and executive director of the Institute for Human-Animal Connection at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, will give a talk called Sharing the Company of Animals. He'll explore the benefits of that connection with animals, including in stimulating communication among people who are socially marginalized, isolated, or no longer trust human relationships. Being close to animals, such as dogs, can also lower blood pressure. The event will be held at West Flanders Brewing at 112 Pearl Street in Boulder. Plan to arrive at 5.30 if you want to order food, and Dr. Tedeschi's talk will be from 6 to 7, including some Q&A time. And for you fossil animal lovers, running, walking, hopping, or even slithering, the movements of animals across the landscape are captured in the tracks they leave behind. Some tracks last only a few minutes, and others become fossils that endure for millions of years. Steps in Stone, Walking Through Time, features real fossil tracks and trackways from the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History collections. Interactive exhibits invite children and adults alike to explore how animals, from insects to dinosaurs, moved across the earth, how their tracks became fossils, and how we study tracks to learn more about ancient landscapes and animals. The exhibit features never-before-exhibited trackway fossils from the collection of paleontologist Martin Lockley, recently retired from the University of Colorado at Denver. The exhibit is open daily from 9 to 5 at the Henderson Museum at 1300 Broadway in Boulder. And today, at 10 this morning, there will be a talk on the CU Boulder campus given by NPR science journalist Richard Harris, titled Science Journalism, Much More Than Dinosaurs. The talk is open to the public in room A2B70 of the Gold Building. A Q&A session will follow from 11 till 12. Next, Dr. Ian Tattersall, the author of The Case of the Rickety Cossack, recently spoke with me about his book, which was featured during the Pledge Drive. The book offers a fascinating view into the history of paleoanthropology, the science of human origins. The study of the human um, uh, fossil record has always sort of evolved itself in a, in a climate of uh, human exceptionalism. There's something a little bit different about us from the, uh, the rest of the living world. And part of that is our question of uh, perception. We are the only uh, species of our family in the world today. And that's quite Which, unusual, isn't it, that, there, that a, a genus would have just a single species? Absolutely. It is very unusual. And in fact, it was uh, uh, not the case in our own family until very, very recently, until Homo sapiens came, uh, came along and sort of cleared away all of the competition in a very short-term uh, event. But this fact that we're alone in the world tends to make us want to reconstruct our past by projecting our one single species back into time in a sort of a single lineage. And um, uh, that is basically the ruling paradigm for uh, uh, for paleoanthropologists even today, the idea that there's a single central lineage that we can project back. But that is very, very different from the evolutionary pattern that we see in most 
successful mammalian families where you have a robust process of evolutionary experimentation with species being generated to go out and do battle on the ecological stage and some of them to succeed and uh, some of them to fail. And the other thing that seems really different about our species is how rapidly there was a great deal of evolutionary change. That's correct. We have, in fact, come a very, very long way in a very short period of time. I don't think there are any other species out there in the world that are uh, as different from their own ancestors of two million years ago uh, as we are. And those ancestors kind of burst on the scene, didn't they, and started changing their environment with stone tools and fire and things like that? Uh, well, it wasn't exactly uh, a, uh, an instantaneous process. Uh, at about seven million years ago, um, in Africa, where the climate was drying out and the forests were tending to give way to woodlands and bushlands and grasslands, some of the apes who'd lived in the earlier forest were forced to come down to uh, to the ground. And um, uh, some of them uh, started moving around on the ground on two legs. They hadn't at that point left the forest yet, and they climbed a lot in the trees, and they sheltered, and they got a lot of their food from the trees, but they moved around in more open ground um, on uh, their, their hind limbs. And... Um, uh, there was then a, a number of experimentations with how to do this, but it wasn't until about two million years ago, you know, five million years later, that our own genus Homo finally emerged. And Homo is characterized by tools, is that correct? Uh, it's generally correlated with uh, with uh, the uh, the usage of tools, but it seems that in fact the earliest uh, stone tool makers were uh, what they very often called bipedal apes of the, uh, of the older kind. This radically new behavior was invented actually by an existing uh, kind of hominid. And then uh, our genus Homo seems to be part of the sequelae to this event. And I remember when I was in graduate school and we talked about did our ancestors stand up first and then get smart and start using tools, or did it happen in the other order? And it seems like from all the various fossils that have been described that you go over in your book, there were all kinds of different experiments that natural selection did with our ancestors and kind of a mix or match of all these different characteristics. That's right. And this, this is very commonly the case in, uh, in any uh, successful mammalian group, that once a new uh, way of doing something is established, for example, moving around on the ground on two feet, that you would uh, get instantly a, an experimentation with all of the different uh, possibilities that this new kind of uh, locomotion uh, offered. And that certainly seems to have been the case. And so one thing that I think our listeners would be really interested in is hearing a little bit of speculation about the admixture and, and interbreeding that could have occurred between different species, especially in more modern times between different species of homo, like the Neanderthals, of course. Yeah, you've already made the point that... Uh a lot has happened in a very short time in the hominid uh, lineage. And now we have a family tree that has at least 24, 25 uh, species in it and um, more to come. And all of these species are very, very closely related. And when you have closely related species that encounter each other 
in the same uh, territory. It's uh, not at all uncommon uh, among mammals for uh, those uh, different species to exchange genes to some extent. And that, doesn't, that seems to have happened uh, uh, on a number of occasions, actually, uh, in human evolution. And we can track that through work that you described in your book as well, some of the genomic studies that um, I, I believe they came initially out of the Berkeley lab that first started doing mitochondrial DNA but then moved to Sweden? Uh, well, that's right. The, uh, uh, the, most of the, uh, the real leap forwards that were made um, during the uh, 20th century in, in the use of uh, DNA to study the origins of, uh, of uh, uh, human and uh, other mammal groups were actually made in the laboratory of a very innovative scientist called Alan Wilson at, um, uh, at Berkeley. Uh, he unfortunately died at a very uh, young age, and uh, one of his students, a guy called uh, Svante Pabo, uh, who is a uh, Swede, um, uh, took up the, uh, the the mantle, as it were. And uh, he's now been working for, for many years uh, at uh, in Leipzig in Germany. So do you think that when these earlier hominids coexisted, um, that there was competition and that the, the sapiens, that is our own species, wiped out their other competitors or that they crowded them out through a process of competition? There's very little direct evidence that we have that bears on this. Uh, all we know is that the arrival of modern Homo sapiens, and that is to say modern behaving Homo sapiens in any one place, seems to have correlated with the disappearance of whatever uh, resident hominids uh, might have been there. For example, we, uh, the last Homo erectus in, uh, in Asia uh, is known from about the same time as we believe um, Homo sapiens got to that area around 40,000 years ago. And the same thing goes for the Neanderthals in the uh, western end of the Eurasian continent. Uh, it was not very long after the uh, arrival of Homo sapiens that the Neanderthals disappeared. And uh, this has got to be more than coincidence. But the actual nature of the interaction is something we can only speculate about. It's interesting to me because the reconstruction that you feature in your book of the Neanderthal from multiple different um, fossilized skeletons mm -hmm. is so robust, and they were obviously so much stronger. And then Homo sapiens is so much smaller and more slender that it couldn't have been direct physical competition. It, has to, it had to have been something else involving tools, perhaps. Yeah. Well, that's one of the remarkable things. I think, I think the, the thing that, that set Homo sapiens, as you say, a relatively uh, uh, lightly built, a relatively puny creature compared uh, to the Neanderthals, um, I think it's the way that they processed information in their brains. Neanderthals had, had large brains. They had brains certainly as large as ours or even larger than the, um, the, uh, the modern average. But they seem to have processed information about the world in a different way than we do today and in, uh, in, in the way that the first Homo sapiens coming into Europe did. That was Ian Tattersall, curator of human origins at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And he was talking about his recent book, The Case of the Rickety Cossack. If you want to get a copy of that book, you can do so by contributing to the Pledge Drive at KGNU.
That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by me, Beth Bennett, with additional contributions from Susan Moran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the Planet Symphony by Gustav Holtz and Colin Matthews, who wrote the Pluto track. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.